I give you that international sensation. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Hello and Come welcome to, to Queer and Now, the Pop Film Society podcast, where we take you on a time-hopping journey through queer cinema, going decade by decade to discover how it has evolved over the years. I'm your host, David Giannini, and I'm here with my co-host, Manish Mather, who is finally, finally happy because we have reached... 1939's The Wizard of Oz. Maybe the gayest movie of all time? Uh, we'll find out. Uh, so how excited are you for this, Manish? Oh, I am so, so, so excited. Okay. All right, so... <laughs> I cannot, yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really glad that we're finally here after this long decade. <laughs> <laughs> finally, we get to some real gay shit. All yeah. right, so now we're into The Wizard of Oz. Like, there is a, you know, this is... This is going to be interesting to talk about because, like, there, I'm not sure there's like overt gay content, but this is kind of like Friends of Dorothy is a thing, right? Uh, to describe gay people, so clearly there is some gay content there. So, and this has got to be a movie that everyone has seen, right? This is on that list. It's on every list of like you know most important films to watch. Blah blah blah. Like yeah. everyone, and everyone saw it when they were a kid. And I think you have a much different experience of it watching as an adult, because I think I probably saw this when I was like five or six years old. And it's a great kids movie. It absolutely works, unless you're terrified of flying monkeys. That's like the only thing maybe that isn't kid friendly. But I think there's also a lot to this as an adult. So is this a movie you've watched numerous times? Oh, I've seen this movie like dozens of times. And it scared me as a kid. Not just the monkeys, but the witch. It was scary. Oh, the yeah. hurricane was scary. Um, the like... Oz, like, floating head was scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I had this moment when I was watching it, like, do I even need to watch this? Like, I've seen it so many times that it's, like, it's not just quotable. It's almost like you watch it and you're like, yep, and then that happens. And then, like, yep, yep, yep. Like, you don't even need, like, (laughs) as soon as you start watching it, you're like, I know exactly what is happening every second. Yeah, yeah. Even I was like, should I even watch this, like, I was like, do I have time to watch Wizard of Oz? <laughs> I'm like, of course I have time. But, like, I was also just like, why not? Like, I, I mean, I, I'm curious to hear um, what you thought of it now. But, like, I was like, I love this movie and I love watching it. And um, I often try not to do too many, like, nostalgia rewatches just because, like, there's so, you know, there's so much stuff out there, right, that's, like, um, new and stuff. I'm like, I don't really want to watch, like movies I've seen before so many times, but I'm like, Wizard of Oz, like, I deserve to watch it, so <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna and watch it's so, it, and, yeah. It's so comfortable. Yeah. Like, it's it just like, you know, it's so interesting, because I think, you know, I think a lot of people go through this, and I definitely went through this, where you start to, like, you know, watch movies you watched as a kid, and you're like, this isn't that good. Like, yeah. Eh. Three stars, not five stars, because I looked at my, because I went through this thing when I first started my Letterboxd account, as I went through and I rated movies that I had seen, like not movies I would watch and then immediately give something, but something I remembered seeing. Yeah. And yeah. without without exception, they're always wrong. Like anytime I watch a movie again that I haven't seen in a while and I look at my letterbox score, I'm like, 
Dave, what is fucking wrong with you? It's either way too high or, or way, way too low. low. I, think yeah, I, yeah. I think I gave this like three and a half or four stars because it's like, you know, it feels like a kid's movie and blah, blah, blah. And I watched this again and I was like, this is perfect. Yeah. This is a perfect movie. Like it it 1000% works even now. And I also realized I had this idea in my head that the opening was like purely black and white. Uh, and it's not. It's like it's got that like sepia tone. Yeah. Yeah. And which makes the transfer to color like it still, honest to God, feels revolutionary as far as filmmaking, even now. Yeah. Like yeah. watching that change. And of course, like, you know, like an asshole, like I have like the, you know, the big TV and the 4K transfer and all that stuff. <laughs> and like, oh, my God, but it makes such a difference. Like the the 4K on this is like the color on this, like really pops. And I was just like kind of taken aback. And it, it kind of made me think like, oh, this is kind of what you know, to a certain level, what audiences in 1939 must have felt like. Like, it is a shock to the system. Much more so for them, because, like, Technicolor wasn't being used as often, as often back yeah, then. Yeah. Um, but even now, watching it, I was just like, holy crap, like, this really, really works. And I also, I, you know, you could sit there and pick things apart, but I like the simplicity of it. I like the fact that, like, you know, the... You know, the three characters that she's going to spend the most time with are a part of her life on the farm, too. And, yeah, it's obvious, and but it's trying to be. Like, I don't think it's a movie that's trying to fool you in no. any way. No. And it's just, like, it it's heartwarming. And, you know, in terms of queerness, we talked about this uh, when we talked about Stage Door in our last episode. But, man, if ever there was a Chosen Family movie. God, it's, like, such... <laughs> It's such a cliche at this point that, like, every queer movie has that element. I mean, like, I think we can go back to, like, every movie we've done in the 2010s and find some element of, like, you know, the found family. But this this is the one. Like, this is the, like, you know, they're all misfits, but together they all work and they accept one another's strengths and limitations. And it just, like, it's heartwarming to see these four characters together on this journey like yeah, i just yeah. it 1000 percent still works and i you know it i think you know <laughs> i spend a lot of time and i'm sure you do too uh kind of reading about the history of film and all the things that go along especially with wizard of oz and i yeah. think it weirdly kind of does a disservice to it because it like uh makes you feel pretty terrible about how judy garland was treated mm-hmm. and I can't remember the name of the actor, but the actor who played the Tin Man, like, you know, kind of nearly fucking dying from this paint, and it's yeah. pretty awful stuff. Uh, and it takes a little bit away from the kind of magic of this movie. And this movie really does feel like magic. Like, I can't think of very many movies I would say that about, but man, this is movie magic, and it is, like, so comforting to watch. Actually, for me, like, it almost adds to the wonder of this movie, like, um, in this, like, in, in a way where it's like, man, like, this movie, like, um, like, what, like, what horrific stuff happened on this set, right? And, but the result is still so pure and so magical. And so, um, like, to me, this element of, like, they went through like hell to make this movie and it came yeah. out so like that it, it became such a cultural touchstone for generations of children and adults and it's like okay sure like i don't you know 
I, you know, I don't want to um, gloss over, you know, the human rights atrocities on, on the set, right? But, like, right, at the right. same time, like, there's an element of, like, they really just, like, went through the ringer for this movie and for this project. But at the same time, like, understanding that I feel like this movie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think this movie was, like, made to become a classic. Like, what oh. I find so fascinating about these <laughs> older classics like Casablanca or this film or, um, you know, I'm, I'm having, like, a lot of these movies, like, they were just kind of made as part of the studio machine. And then they just like emerged as classics and um, right through television. Um, oh, it's a wonderful life. That was the other one I was thinking about. Like, it's oh, just yeah. like it just be, yeah. They're just like these ordinary movies that just like if we could talk about this if they like clicked with audiences or where they're just like played over and over and over again so right. much to the point where right. it becomes cultural touchstones. And um, so like I don't want to like you know, wax poetry about, like, you know what, they cared about this art. Because that's not true. It's not like they, you know, Judy, like, no one on this movie was, like, suffering for the art, thinking this movie was going to be this, like, great, you know, pinnacle of cinema, right? But at the same time, like, it is a pinnacle of cinema, and they did go through the ringer for it. And it's, you know, it's like, it's, you know, it feels a little gross to say this, but, like, you know, this movie was made, you know, 80 years ago, right? So, like... right whatever happened on that set happened decades ago and now it's like to me it's just, it's a part of the legacy of the movie it's a part of the queerness of this movie of all this like mm. um you know just the trauma and the tragedy of, of the behind the scenes stuff and it still created something so beautiful and magical mm. yeah it's really interesting like kind of reading up like if you read up on the making of this movie and everything that went wrong this if you didn't know anything about the movie this reads as one of those like and here's where everything went wrong and everything got fucked up yeah and it never yeah. made it like and it never made like any um, money, like, like a terry you know. gilliam movie or whatever <laughs> Right. I mean, like, you know, you have Judy, Judy Garland originally in a blonde makeup and this heavy baby doll. I mean, a, a blonde wig and heavy baby doll makeup. And, yeah. You know, George Cooker had to come in and like change everything and like make all these fixes. And, and to its credit, like actually never took any of that credit um, until Victor Fleming had passed. Like he let him have the stage since he was the director, yeah, um, which yeah. I think is really kind and not something you see in Hollywood very often. Um, but all these things happen and actors switching roles and having to do all these reshoots. And it feels like something that was destined to be a failure. And yet when you watch this, you would never know. Yeah. If you didn't know about any of that history, this movie feels polished and professional and the song and dance numbers works. The, the villains work, you know, the special effects for what they were in 1939 work tremendously well. Like it just and it's I, I think sometimes when we think of like classic films, whether they're made for all audiences or just for older audiences, I think we expect a uh, slower pace. We expect longer run times. And this movie just whips along. Yeah. Like it really, really flies by. And I was kind of surprised by that. Like I, as we, I, I noticed it as it got to the scene, you know, the poppies scene, like when they all fall asleep, like it feels like I was like, oh man, we're already here. Yeah. Wow. Right. Like yeah. <laughs> you can get through that first 20, 25 minutes where she's, she's actually in Kansas. 
like as soon as it gets to uh it gets to this kind of fantasy land like it moves really really quickly and i was shocked by that because it's probably been a decade since i've watched this like this and again it's because it's a movie i know so well it doesn't feel like oh i need to put this on and refresh my memory about the wizard of oz like yeah we we know what happens here like this is not some big mystery and i think it's so ingrained in the culture and as you mentioned like very similar to to wonderful life in the way that it was like constantly on television when we were kids and it was always there i think the difference here is the wizard of oz actually made some money uh when it first came out whereas it's a wonderful life was kind of a failure yeah Uh, yeah. but it, it only got popular once it you know got attached to television and christmas viewing whereas this has kind of always been you know regardless of all the terrible things that happen on set as you mentioned it it's the standard it's the standard for Hollywood movie magic. Like, yeah. this, is, this is where we're at. Like, from from the very, I think where it really hinges is, you know, Judy Garland singing. As soon as we get that first song, like, you know you're in for something special. Because, the, you know, say what you will about Judy Garland later in her career or whatever. But, like, that voice, oh, my God. Like, it is, even now, stunning to hear. Even, even on your television at home, like, it is pretty impressive stuff. Judy Garland is so magnificent in this movie. And, you know, she's, I think she's an incredible actor. Um, you know, I really am, uh, you know, I really am um, a fan of hers as an actor because I think she is, just has this inherently compelling, endearing, charismatic um, screen presence. And then she backs that up with this powerful voice and this um, mm. powerful, um, like, body language and so she just commands the screen even with someone who is like you know two feet tall (laughs) (laughs) and like she's so petite she's so tiny but she's so strong and what i love about the wizard of oz is how much of it is such a classic hero's journey right like it's that like Mm -hmm. you know if you take any screenwriting class the first thing you'll learn is like like 12 steps or 16 steps of a hero's journey and the wizard of oz is like (laughs) that to the t but yeah. in some ways, it works so well because Judy Garland is such a force at the center, and she's so in, in, it boggles my mind how in tune she is with this movie, considering she's likely like hopped up on drugs the whole time. <laughs> right. And um, yeah, I mean, like not just in this film, but a lot of her movies that I've seen, like The Clock, Meet Me in St. Louis, um, and uh, some of her like early works with uh, Mickey Rooney. It's like wow, you are, like, abused by your boss and your parents and whoever else, and you're still putting in this commitment. And, like, somehow she can just, like, snap into place um, Mm. when the camera is on, and she just is able to deliver. I mean, however many takes it took for her to do it, like, however long they were there, like, she was able to just, like, put in the performance. And I think... This, because Wood of Oz is so canonical, it's so, it has such replay value, I think people will kind of underrate Judy Garland's performance or underestimate it because they just think, oh, you know, she's just like, you know, just playing this like Cypher, Mary Sue, whatever you want to call it type character. But I really think she's doing some incredible work here. And I think her singing, you know, carries a lot of it, sure, but also just this like, 
and just just her screen presence, her the way she can just dominate the camera, and or like you know she does that like quiver thing with her voice, you know, like when she says "aniem" or when she's like crying. Anytime she's crying, it's like you just feel it. It's so resonant. It's so yeah. rich. Yeah, I'm gl- I'm glad you brought her her performance up, and not in terms of her voice and her singing, but her actual performance here because. Yes, she's the lead character, so of course, you know, saying something like she's the most important piece of this sounds trite, but really, um, you replace her with anyone else, and I think this movie kind of falls apart. Yeah. Uh, because she is, in a lot of ways, the audience surrogate to this fantasy land, right? You're you're uh, exploring it and figuring things out with her. Um, and she has this presence that the only word I can think of to describe it is just genuine. Yeah. Like even in this nonsense, I mean, let's be real. This movie is full of nonsense. There's <laughs> flying monkeys. There's a yellow brick road. There's, you know, you know, a wizard who's lying. I mean, there's all sorts of crazy stuff in this movie. And if you don't have someone genuine in that lead role, it completely loses any structure. Yeah. And you stop caring. But because she is so genuine, not only with her performance, but in the way she relates to her fellow actors, like, you know, you know, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, um, the Scarecrow, they're all bit players, right? They're all they're like not only in terms of smaller parts, but they're they're doing a bit. Yeah. Right? You, know, yeah. You, got the, you know, they're all doing their little thing and their shtick works. But if you don't have Dorothy there to be entertained by it and to care about them then it absolutely like who cares like yeah that was mildly entertaining but i'll never think about that movie again right uh so judy garland like carries this movie on her shoulders and does an incredible job like not only in the fantasy world but even getting you to care about her like i think you care about dorothy within the first minute of this movie like when this silly little girl falls in the pig pen like you're worried for her yeah from that moment on Um, And seeing her grow and seeing her change and seeing her, you know, take ownership of herself and really move through this film is is pretty rewarding experience. Um, And these are things you don't notice when you're watching as a kid. Because you're watching as a kid, you're like, this is fun. There's a lot of bright colors. There's dancing. There's singing. Great. I'm entertained. There's flying monkeys. There's a scary witch. There's a giant floating head. Cool. But as you're watching this as an adult, it's like, Wow, she's doing some really shockingly subtle work here in a movie that, like, let's be real, is not a subtle piece of film. Like, that's not what it's going for. Yeah, yeah. She does some pretty incredible stuff here. Almost like her her arc to the film is so subtle. Like, and how she becomes this um, confident and, uh, um, you know... uh, confident and um like with like gumption and and formidable and you almost like it almost happens in a way you don't even recognize it and um and i like what you say about the three companion three friends of dorothy uh being bit players because like there's a reason why we don't know who those actors are and like i think a lot of these like kids movies like you don't really think of these people as actors partially because like they're in makeup the whole time so you don't really see their face but like right. you know, they're not stars. They're not Judy Garland, and I mean, Judy Garland was famous when she made this movie, of course. And I don't, you sure. know, I don't think anyone else is really as famous as she was. Um, no. uh, maybe like Billy Burke had been in and stuff, and Margaret Hamilton has been as well. But like for the most part, oh, and Frank 
Frank Morgan. Yeah, I mean, they're like, they're around, they're character actors, but like, Julie Garland is a capital S star. <laughs> like, yeah. in sepia tone and in color. Like, um, you know, I mean, it's so crazy how Somewhere of the Rainbow is so, like, iconic when it's not even in, like, the main, like, right. of the film. Like, I mean, there. I, I feel you know, like, like that moment is always surprising to me because it feels like something that's in color. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. like, how is this really? We're doing this now? Like, but almost, you, I think you need that. Yeah, it's like an eleven o'clock. It's like the kind of song that happens either at like intermission of the musical or like right before the finale. <laughs> but it right, comes like within right. the first ten minutes, and it, but it carries this film, like that theme, like not the musical theme, but just the theme of the song, carries the film entirely in a way without too many reprises without too many like callbacks like she's you know like she says like we must be over the rainbow sure but like it doesn't she doesn't say that all you know you know what i mean like it's not like so repetitive but right because of her performance and because of the strength of the song like it just like carries the entire film completely strength of the song but the lyricism of it like that you know it's defining what is going to happen and not only what she yearns for but what we're going to experience and you know we talked about you know subtlety and you know maybe things we remember differently from if we don't watch it for a long time and that's another thing that stuck out to me is like i always you know seeing this as a kid i was like oh that wizard he's a villain right like he's he's the bad guy um and it kind of every time i watch it it's always shocking to me like how you know like yeah he's duplicitous and he's not a good guy but he's certainly not villainous either even in the beginning when she meets you know the character who will become the wizard like as she goes back home like he's convinced her to go back home yeah and he, he basically says like i hope she's okay like it's it's very like it's a very like especially when you've seen the movie before, rewatching it is actually a pretty strong moving moment um, that could be very throwaway, um, and it it's a great way to set up who that character is. Just like all the farm hands helping her out is a great way to set up who their characters will be as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think like. Uh, but is so like as you know we keep calling this movie like kind of nonsense or not subtle but like there are these little moments of like really subtly like the one you mentioned i think some of her interactions with oz like after the after he's kind of revealed by toto um and even like the moments between the her and and her three friends and um like there's such a like companionship i mean going back to this like found family 
you know, archetype. Um, like, the relationship between these four, like, they all are very, like, they have the same goal and their same objective, but they have different relationships with each other. Um, and, uh-huh. I find, you know, like, they all relate to Dorothy differently, they relate to each other differently, and, you know, some of, like, the most... Um, uh, some of my favorite parts is when they're not with Dorothy, you know, and they're trying to rescue her. Mm-hmm. And we have to right. figure out a way to save her without her being the, like, beacon or the, like, voice of reason or whatever you want to call it, without them, without having without them having the center of their group. And their dynamic right. there, it's like, you know, we're in this for Dorothy, and she, you know, we love her, we want to rescue her, so we need to, like, work together and conquer our, you know, fears or our inhibitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, in watching this movie, you know, it's hard to, honestly, hard to watch this movie without a queer lens yeah. uh, <laughs> at this point. But specifically watching it for that, the thing I was most struck by is that kind of memories of my own, my own life when I was in the closet and... Mm-hmm. You know, or when you start to come out, but only to people you know who are also queer or you know who are accepting and how bad you need that community. Because, like, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes about gay characters as perverse or as monsters. And, like, when you aren't accepted by your family, by communities, by society at large, you feel like that. You do feel like something is wrong with you. And when you find other people that don't just accept you blindly, but accept you because of who you are, that is powerful. And each one of those characters, each one of those four main characters, loves, respects, and connects with each other for who that person is, or that tin man, or that scarecrow, or that lion. They accept them for who they are with their faults and with their strengths, and none of the rest matters. And that is powerful. That is a powerful experience that, you know, hopefully hopefully most queer people in the future don't have to feel that way, but just about every queer person, at least from, like, our generation and before, has felt that much that that's that that feeling of being solitary and when you find your people like that is a huge moment in every queer person's life and i remember that happened for me in high school where like you know you can stop lying about who you are and you can start connecting with people who are similar to you they don't have to be the same they can have different backgrounds different experiences but you know that they're going to accept the fact that you are queer and that like you can't have a more powerful moment that's why the coming out process is individualized for everyone and frankly pretty difficult for everyone there's very few people that have an easy coming out experience even if your family accepts you and your friends accept you the process of coming out is an internal process and can be very difficult and you build it up in your head as being this is going to be awful and then they accept you you're like oh god i blew that out of proportion but finding your community i mean like i don't know if you if you're because we're like slightly different ages like we're the same generation but there's differences like it used to be that used to be a code word for um are you gay or are you queer is are you family um that's what people used to say and if you weren't in the queer community you'd have no idea what that meant but that is what it feels like that found family thing is a real and impactful thing yeah and um i think you know what i love about the found family in this film it's like the thing that we thought was our most 
um, the thing that we thought was our most like our most hated quality or whatever, our like least favorite quality about ourselves is actually our biggest strength. And yes. you know, our biggest flaw is our biggest strength, and um, that's done so beautifully in this film where you know it's not that you know the scarecrow the carline they have to or the tin man they have to like change to survive and and to you know win the day or whatever but in fact that the the very things that they were most afraid of are the things that make them them and make them unique and powerful Mm -hmm. and um and worthy and valuable to the group and you know, even like when the wizard gives them these like tokens or whatever, it's really just that they have it already in themselves. You know, the scarecrow mm-hmm. had the brains and the tin man had the heart and the carline had the courage and they just needed to have that brought out of them. And in some ways, Dorothy had her mm-hmm. home too. You know, she found a right. home in Oz. Even, you know, quick, you know, she's able to just, I mean, become one of the most famous people in Oz. <laughs> Right. <laughs> almost immediately <laughs> like it's yes. you know she was able to find that and she would find people who cared for her and loved her and I mean you know going even outside the Oz fantasy you know she had all she had everything she needed in Kansas with her right. family and um, it's just so like it's so powerful to me to see characters not having to change something that's so internal or so interior and that like it's yeah because you don't really have to change who you are you have that you know that excellence within you already right. and to put a fine to put an even finer point on it like all those things you mentioned are true and they found all those through their community yeah like right. dorothy found her home through these these three characters that accepted her and protected her and helped her uh the lion found his courage you know when when dorothy was kidnapped yeah. You know, like they found their heart, they found their brain, they you know, he came up with the plan. Like they found this all through finding their people. Yeah. Um and once you find your people, like even if you have things that you're better at and not as good at, a lot of those things get washed away because you work with your people and all of you working together are going to make you all into a better community. And I think that's essentially the end message of this movie is that, you know, connect with the right people and build your own community and you're going to be fine even in dangerous situations even when things get bad if you have your friends in your community to rely on you're going to be just fine and i think that is what like especially in america that is what gay culture has been founded on mm-hmm. in a lot of ways like i mean yeah. gay culture would never have made it through the aids epidemic if we weren't connected to one another like yeah. in, in the only reason news got out about the HIV and AIDS epidemic is through other gay people because our wonderful American government was not willing to protect and help gay people because they would rather we're dead. So we have only ourselves to rely upon. And I think that is essentially the message here as well. Yeah, I mean, it's telling, right, that Wizard of Oz becomes a, a gay classic in the 80s. or I think late 70s it started, yeah. but, like, in the late 80s, you know, that's when that generation of queer men latched onto this movie, and I think it's exactly what you're saying. You know, that's the strength through community, strength through family is so, it's, I mean, necessary for survival because, you know, yeah, no one, no one understood Dorothy, right, when she was in Kansas, um, and same with 
the other people in their realms. They just didn't they didn't have that support. Right, right. But once they were all together, <laughs> yeah. Now we have an understanding. <laughs> yeah, let's can we, let's switch over to like the more like campy parts of this movie. Um, okay. Just so because I mean we can keep talking about that, but I was like it's getting very serious. <laughs> Um, go ahead uh, no I mean like I was just like well um, what like what are your favorite like moments in the movie hmm that's a good question like your favorite Um, song I yeah like especially as as a kid and this probably says a lot about me i was much more in tune with the villains um so the scene you know where our wicked witch is like you know sending off the you know her flying monkeys is yeah. like legitimately pretty scary, it's very scary and yeah. pretty but like as an adult like it's so fun like just seeing this all enacted um so that's i mean that really stands out for me as does the the meeting with the the quote unquote the wizard um i think it's just kind of a master class in the kind of sound design and visual effects and also the performances from our from our four leads here like yeah. really really work like seeing that fear and yes it's overplayed and over the top but that's the kind of movie it is and i think that's i think one of the kindest things i can say about this movie too is all the actors seem to they might not because there were so many changes going on but they seem to know the tone and the kind of movie they're in yeah yeah um i specifically remember this movie being how i learned the word meek i don't know why but specifically that like like um you, you know just have, you just have these like random memories right of this movie that for some reason i remember right. being like oh meek what does that mean and like looking it up <laughs> Um, uh, yeah no I mean I love um, yeah me being me I love the makeover in in Emerald City Um, Mary Land of Oz great song I think that's like one of my favorite (laughs) songs Um, I love the Scarecrow I wanted to like be the Scarecrow he was my favorite Um, (laughs) it's a great physical performance yeah yeah well, you, you you bring up a good point about the Wicked Witch because, like, she's also a, a camp icon. And, um, mm-hmm. and uh, again, like, as we were talking about in our previous episodes, this idea of, like, witches and monsters becoming queer-coded and becoming, like, queer icons. Like, there is something so, like, you know, like, very, like, drag act about the Wicked Witch. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, 100%. Although that may be, like, you know, 2020 eyes on this thing, because I don't don't know how big, you know, that kind of drag act was in the late 30s, early 40s, but this is something that gay culture, Wizard of Oz in general, is something that gay culture has gotten a hold of and really attached itself to. So that... that Yeah, because, like, I mean, I think, like, as much, like, you know, the, like, the found family themes of this movie are very powerful, but I also feel like the campiness of this movie is also what solidifies it as a queer classic, right? Because it's just, like, so fantastical, so colorful, so theatrical. You know, I mean, Judy Garland is, like, made up like a doll, and, you know, the the um, the good witch is, uh, you know, in that, like, giant bubble and the pink dress, and, you know, I think <laughs> both, I mean, both Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion are heavily, like, quoted as, like, not only gay but like fangs and so i mean the, yeah. the tin man is yeah. like you know the, the biggest gay character of all time 
<laughs> yes. Um, yes. And 100%. so, like, I think a lot of the, like, you know, like, you know, you were saying earlier, like, you can't watch this movie without thinking about um, its queerness. And it's true. Like, everything about this movie is just so queer. And, like, right. uh, I'm really curious to, like, talk to, like, straight people and see, like, I mean, to see, like, what they think of this movie like do they does this like come across to them at all or is this like is this just some like campy fantasy movie like I'm so curious because like to me it's like every inch of this movie is homosexual is like queer yeah yeah it's interesting because I think uh, how do I say this without judging straight people oh um, come on I think this that, is a safe space um, to judge them <laughs> I think when straight people use the word campy, it's an insult. Yeah. Uh, and when yeah, queer people is. use the word campy, it is a compliment. Yeah. Um, so I feel or like. Or at least an like, acknowledgement of an actual aesthetic, right? Because I think straight people right, will call right. things campy without knowing what that bad. means. Yeah, right, right. Yes, 100%. So I think there's a certain attitude in, you know, I, well, let's say this. Um, I think this is an untouchable movie in a lot of ways. Like there is, unless you're just going to be an asshole on the internet, <laughs> you're not going to be like, you know, what sucks wizard of Oz. Like that's just, it seems like, it seems like attacking something that doesn't deserve it. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, come on, this is a Hollywood classic. You watched it as a kid, get over yourself. Yeah, but when yeah. you get into the weeds of this, into the, like the nitty gritty and the camp aspect of it, I think a lot of straight people look at this and they kind of go, well, yeah, that's a little silly. But, you know, the music is good and the dancing is good. So it's fine. Whereas in general, queer people watch this and like, no, no, that's a that's a feature, not a bug. Like, this right, is what right. we love about it. It's how the top it is. And, you know, as you were talking about things you remembered, and I think, honestly, the only thing that scared me when I was watching this movie as a kid, strangely, is like, you know, the witches soldiers, you know, the chanting, oh, yeah. and the marching, that- that sequence when they're trying to like honestly the sequence where they're trying to break in and save Dorothy is kind of a masterclass in suspense in the middle of a camp classic. Yeah. Like it is like very worrisome as you're watching it cuz at first you're like, "Ah, oh, you guys don't know anything you're scared about. You're the heroes, you're going to be great." And then when you're shown what they have to break into and what they have to fight against, you're like, "Oh, well maybe Maybe we need to come up with a different plan. These guys, they got weapons. They're marching. They're chanting. They're like real soldiers. Like this yeah. is, that was the only thing I remember being pretty scary for me as a kid. The the witch was great. The blind monkeys was great. But the you know the marching soldiers, I was like, they're very scary. Well, that their their chanting is so it's very creepy. <laughs> it is even now. What yeah. we like, it yeah, is, yeah, like it's a little bit silly because it's a musical but even watching it now i'm like oh yeah this was meant to be intimidating and it still works i was also very scared by the trees that threw the apples <laughs> i was kidding oh yes yes um, now it's like one of my favorite parts of the movie like i i mean like i really love all the yellow big road stuff like from the munchkin land to the poppies like um i just like it's so fun it's, it's like it's so cool to think of Oz as, like, a country with, like, different little, you know, cities or, like, towns or whatever. There's, like, different lands, and you are, like, in the forest, or you're in the, like, Tin Man area, or you're in the, 
the fields with the scarecrow, like Munchkin Land. Like, there's nice just like she's not just transported, right? Right. She has to go like, through this whole. You have to get, it is journey. the hero's journey. You have to meet your yeah. friends along the way. Yeah. You gotta go through little trials and tribulations until you get to where you need to go. And I always think it's funny how to think about like how they you know they changed the ending of the novel, right? Like. In the novel, she actually goes. Well, they change a lot. Yeah, but sure, sure, right. But like the <laughs> ending specifically. Yeah, I have to say it's so funny to me when these old movies like buy the rights to the novel and then change everything about it. I'm like, why not just make an original movie? <laughs> like stage door so being like, I, know. I, yeah, yeah, screen door. Yeah, right. I was, <laughs> I was starting to think about that um, as we talked about stage door and then leading up to this because I've read The Wizard of Oz, I've read the book, and yeah, it was yeah, very so different, I. and. It's so interesting because modern audiences have such a strong reaction when adaptations are changed a lot. Um, like, oh, why would you change the ending? Why would you change this? Why would you change that? Yeah. But this has been – this is a Hollywood uh, – this is a structure in Hollywood. This is right. what they've done forever is they buy up the rights for like the bare bones of a story and then they make it into a real movie. Uh, so it's so interesting because back then probably no one cared. But like if you did this now – I mean, people get upset about changes made to things like, you know, hair color, like, uh, yeah, I mean, or even like beach reads, like, you know, uh, the girl on the train, let alone like a classic of literature. Like, it's so interesting how things have changed in that way. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but like the ending of the movie has changed because they were like audiences are too sophisticated to believe that she actually went to a different like fantasy country. Um, right. And I thought that's so interesting because, like, I don't know, I feel like a cliche now is to think of, like, we're more sophisticated. But I feel like now we would, like, we would call it a trick ending as she wakes up and it's all a dream. You know, I hate that yeah, ending, actually. Yeah. Like, I don't like when things are all a dream because it feels like all those stakes were for nothing. But I think in The Wizard of Oz, it makes so much sense because it's so centered on her her, her growth and her evolution as a as a character. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it wor- like one, it works better the way it is because back then not everything was done that way. Like the it's all a dream wasn't right. yeah, a yeah. standard anymore. But also because of her age, uh, because of the fact that she this is literally a coming of age story, and that yeah. she's a, she's a girl. She's not a woman in this, even though they, you know, kind of some of the makeup is a little questionable. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, the fact that like she is there to grow and like kind of accept her life um, that she's going to live and connect with the people around her. Like it's an important lesson for her. So I think if she actually went off to some far off land and it wasn't a dream, it kind of rings a little bit hollow. You'd have to change, I think, a lot of things in the kind of prologue. All right, so Wizard of Oz, we've made it through, so let's talk about, uh, you know, we've had a lot of trouble in the 1930s with this whole Russo test, and it may continue here, so does this film contain a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, or trans? Well, this comes to the question of that we always have, is like, what does it mean to be identifiable? Like, do they identify as it, or are we identifying them? Because... If it's that we can identify them, then I think obviously Tin Man, Coward Lion, Scarecrow, you know, mm. I think they all count, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so too. Yeah, I think there's a certain dividing line there because if we're waiting for movies from the 1930s to identify a gay character, we might be sitting around for a long time. So I don't think it applies there, but I yeah. think there are. 
especially looking back at it now, like all three of those characters are clearly not gay stereotypes, but certainly have gay aspects or queer aspects to their characters. So we're going to say a tentative yes on number one. And number two, the character must not be solely or predominantly defined by their sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, so do you think these characters, and I think I know the answer, have other traits besides their sexuality that differentiate them from each other? Yeah, yeah. This is obvious, yes, right? I mean, they're, like, identified by their, like, you know, what they want from the wizard. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the movie actually says it. Like, I I need a heart. I need a brain. You know, it's, like, very clear. All right. So, um, and three, the LGBTQ character must be tied into the plot in such a way that their removal would have a significant effect, meaning they are not there simply to provide colorful commentary, paint urban authenticity, or set up a punchline. The character should matter. So, do one or all of these characters matter? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I think- Dorothy doesn't make it without them. Yeah, I think the the thing that makes them matter probably the most, I mean, there's lots of examples, but if you don't have that scene where Dorothy is trapped and they have to go get her and they have to help her, then you could make an argument that they're there for colorful commentary and to just serve our lead character. Yeah. But the fact that they have to, like, you know, pull themselves together uh, and go help out Dorothy, I think, is what really sets them apart. So, yeah, so this one, I think, satisfied for the first time in a couple episodes, satisfies the Russo test. So that's good. So, Manish, what did you learn from watching The Wizard of Oz for the 900th time? Um, You know, like, this is one of those movies where I get something out of it every time I watch it. And, you know, the way that you really articulated the power power of the found family within this film and how much that it um, really is significant in real life is just just beautiful. I don't like to praise you that often. But um, you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you really, I think, um, were so eloquent in how you talked about it, and it really put this movie in a different perspective for me. Even a movie that I love and have seen a million times, and could I could you know replay it for you word for word. Um, but even after all this time, I, I found a new appreciation for this movie. Nice. All right, so we're ending our podcast forever after that and going out on top. Uh, That's the last thing I'll ever say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Dave's going to stop talking. Sure he is. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think I said what I needed to say as far as, like, what, you know, what I got from this movie. But it is, like, very – it's very kind of charming to watch a movie you've watched that many times and get something powerful out of it and not just, like, that was fun. But, like, no, there's something real there. So it just goes to show you can watch a movie a bunch of times, and if the movie itself is great, you're going to get something new out of it if you look at it with a new perspective. So yeah. That's great. All right. So that is it for the 1930s. Um, so now we are going to jump way forward in time to the 2000s. So maybe we'll get what Manish has been clamoring for, some actual queer content, not something we have to stretch and stretch to find, but something actually queer. Um, so the first movie we're going to be covering is Billy Elliot, uh, which I am told is a movie that Manish has never seen. Um, so that should be exciting, seeing a modern queer movie that Manish is a first-time watcher of. So we have that to look forward to. Uh, but in the meantime, Manish, um, how can they reach us and you on social media? You can follow the podcast at Queer Not Pod. Uh, follow me at the Manish89. That's T H E M A N I S H 89 
Also, I have another podcast with Talk Film Society called It Pod to Be You, which you can find at It Pod to Be You. And Dave, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me online way too often uh, on Twitter <laughs> at Darn That Dave, and you can listen to my other podcast called Offscreen Death, and find that on Twitter at Offscreen Death, and we will come back to you in the year two thousand.